Welcome to this week's edition of Fair Territory. Still plenty of free agents out there, still plenty of trades to be made. We say this every single week. But today I'm going to focus on a group of free agents that I have labeled the Boris Four. Boris being, of course, Scott Boris, the agent for the stars. He has the top remaining four free agents. Scott, if you're watching or listening, a couple of caveats because I know he can get a little irritated once in a while when people say or write things. First of all, the Boris Four, it's not a pejorative. It's not like the Chicago Seven. Look it up, kids, if you don't know what that is. And also, I know, Scott, also, you have more than four free agents remaining. The four I'm going to focus on, of course, are Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Matt Chapman, and Cody Bellinger. But in addition, Scott Boris represents the following free agents, J.D. Martinez, Reese Hoskins, Hyunjin Ryu, James Paxton, and I'm probably missing a couple. I apologize. But let's dive into the Boris Four, and I want to start and really focus more on Snell, Chapman, and Bellinger than Montgomery. Because with Snell, Chapman, and Bellinger, there is a list of pros and cons. These are not perfect free agents. They're guys with some questions surrounding them. So let's start with Blake Snell. Obvious pros. This guy is a two-time Cy Young winner, once in each league. You see it right there in the pros section. Also, 1.20 ERA in his final 23 starts. Joel Sherman of the New York Post had a note in his column. That's the best 23 start regular season period since Gibson in 1968. Pretty good. And for all the questions we'll get to about his walks, only 12 of his 99 walks scored. That's 12.1%. That's about half the league average. So he kept those guys from scoring, even though, as you see in the list of cons, he had the highest walk rate in the majors, highest since Matt Clement in 2000, 13.3%. Also, the four seasons in between the Cy Youngs, he was basically a league average pitcher. So who is Blake Snell? Is he the Cy Young guy or is he the other guy, the guy from 2019 to 2022? That is something teams will have to decide. Okay, we keep going here. The next guy on the Boris Four to discuss, Matt Chapman. Now, Matt Chapman is a great defender, four-time gold glove winner at third base. He is someone who has won two platinum gloves as well, and he too has some pros and cons. You see the four gold gloves? He also is a very durable guy looking at his pros. Average 149 games in his five full seasons. And this year, despite a kind of offensive regression in the final five months of the season, his hard hit rate was in the 100th percentile. He was better than anyone in the majors as far as hard hit rate was concerned. The cons, though, are the results. Batted 203 with a 659 OPS after May 1st. That's not great. He had a great April, not so good after that. And his 17 home runs were his lowest in a full season since 2019. So, Matt Chapman, what are you buying? You're buying a durable guy, a guy who is a brilliant defender, someone who is a steady and a positive offensive player. He's an above-average league player from an offensive point of view. Well above average, actually. Not Mike Schmidt-like, but he is an okay hitter. Wouldn't say great, and certainly last year he had his struggles, but he also had a finger injury in the final two months that might have contributed. So there are still teams that are going to look at Matt Chapman, and they're going to like what they see. The Giants could be one of them, but there are others as well. And frankly... I know the Blue Jays have signed Isaiah Kainer-Falefa. If I were the Blue Jays, I'd still be trying to sign Matt Chapman. So that's two of the three that I want to discuss. And the third, 
the international man of mystery, Cody Bellinger. And I say that international man of mystery because Bellinger is somewhat like Snell. Who is this guy? Is it the guy who was the MVP and the guy who was brilliant last year for the Cubs? Or is it the guy who struggled in the three seasons in between, in part due to injuries? Cody Bellinger has his own list of pros and cons. The pros, well, you see it right there. 307 batting average for the Cubs last year, 26 homers and 881 OPS. Outstanding. His age also is a positive. He's entering his age 29 season, relatively young for a free agent, and he is a versatile defensive player. Gives you above average defense both at center field and first base. You can do it in both areas with him. Cons, kind of curious. His hard hit percentage, his exit velocities are low, opposite of Chapman. Chapman has the great hard hit numbers and the low results or the poor results. Bellinger, poor hard hit numbers and great results. And, of course, the other con is what he was between 2020 and 2022. He had an OPS 5% below the league average in those seasons. So that's three of the four. I didn't really touch on Jordan Montgomery here because Jordan Montgomery, to me, is kind of straightforward. He is a really good major league pitcher, a guy who elevated his value in the postseason with his performance last year. He was exactly what the Yankees thought he wasn't when they traded him for Harrison Bader. He was a good postseason pitcher. So Jordan Montgomery, is he an ace? I don't know that he's an ace, but he's a number two or three. Absolutely he is that. So that's the Boris Four. I know there's more, but those are the guys that right now are kind of the focus of the industry. And it's going to be really interesting to see how Scott Boris plays it with these guys. He, as we know, will wait until he gets the offer he wants. He is not afraid to do that. Kind of has nerves of steel at this time of year. Sometimes, often, he gets what he wants. Sometimes he doesn't. And we'll just have to see how this all plays out for him. I would expect the two pitchers are going to do well. I would expect Bellinger's going to do well and Chapman too. The question is how well. Okay, those are the free agents we were discussing this week. Also want to get into the trade that happened on Friday. The one between the Giants and Mariners. Quite interesting on a number of levels. We'll give you a quick analysis from both teams' perspectives. The Giants, you see there, they get Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray is coming off Tommy John surgery. Probably won't be ready till July or August. The Mariners get Mitch Haniger, who of course they had for many years before. Anthony DiScafani and $6 million to balance out the salaries for 2024. Now, obviously, the Giants are taking on more salary. This trade was driven in part by the Mariners' payroll concerns. We've heard about them all offseason. Their ownership is freaking out over the possibility of losing local television revenue this season like so many other teams. It's this year's excuse trademarked by the owners. Now, the Mariners did this, though, because they wanted to put less money in their rotation going forward and shift it to kind of the offensive side of the game with Hanniger. And they also have signed Mitch Garver, of course. And what they had in the rotation were two high-priced guys, Robbie Ray and Luis Castillo. They also had at the start of the offseason Marco Gonzalez, who was making $12 million. And they have the younger pitchers, Logan Gilbert, first year of arbitration, George Kirby, he will be entering arbitration a year from now. So they were looking at, with Ray signed for three years, a possibility of like a $75 million rotation in 2026. 
they didn't want that. They didn't want to carry Ray this year, making all that money when he wasn't going to pitch until August. This was payroll driven, but it was also kind of a rebalancing of where they were between the pitching and the offensive side. The more interesting angle here is probably the Giants angle, right? So they get Robbie Ray. He should be back, as I said, July or August. Alex Cobb, coming off hip surgery, he probably won't be around until July or August. So let's look at their rotation right now. The rotation isn't their only need, but the opening day rotation is a need. It's Logan Webb, it's Rush Stripling, it's Kyle Harrison, the great prospect, Keaton Wynn, and Tristan Beck. That's their opening day group as of this moment, barring any other moves. They're going to have to wait for Cobb and Ray. So, could they sign Snell or Montgomery to enhance that group? They absolutely could. They have money. We know that. They were bidding on Shohei Otani. They were bidding on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. The Giants also have other needs. They still need power. Matt Chapman would fit. They still are looking for a shortstop. They're not so sure they want to turn it over to Marco Luciano without a safety net. So the Giants have a number of things that they have to do, but this trade has good upside for them. If Robbie Ray comes back, wow, that's an ace-type starter in your rotation to go with Logan Webb in the second half and, perhaps at that point, an emerging Kyle Harrison. So yes, Robbie Ray can opt out at the end of this season, and he very well might if he comes back and gets hot. But more likely, he's going to be on some restrictions coming off Tommy John surgery. He's never been a particularly efficient guy. I would expect shorter controlled outings when he returns. Could be high impact. Don't get me wrong. Will it be enough for him to opt out? I don't know. But if he does get to that point, it means that Robbie Ray pitched really well for the Giants. And that's a good thing. Time now for the inside dish. This is the part of the show where I go inside a story I've written, inside a trend in the game, or this week, inside my Hall of Fame ballot. I wrote about this Friday in The Athletic and listed my nine choices this year. We can choose up to ten. I listed nine. I have nine. I'll explain them. And I'll preface this by saying that the Hall of Fame discussion is one that gets kind of heated every year in some quarters. And I don't believe it should be. In my view, everyone is entitled to their opinion, and pretty much every opinion is valid. Now, you'll see some things that aren't valid. When somebody says Adrian Beltre is not a Hall of Famer, that is not valid. Adrian Beltre is an obvious Hall of Famer. And if someone doesn't vote for Adrian Beltre, well, that's his or her right to do that. If you're a voter, you can do whatever you want. You earn the vote with 10 years in the Baseball Writers Association of America, and I'm not going to sit here and vote shame. Do I think certain things are dumb? Yes, I think certain things are dumb. But it's a vote. It's not world peace we're talking about. I don't know that we should get all that heated about it. So let's get to my ballot. Let's get to my choices this year. Yes, Adrian Beltre making his first appearance on the ballot was one of them. Yes, Joe Maurer making his first appearance was another. I had a number of holdovers as well. Todd Hilton. Andrew Jones, Jimmy Rollins, well, he's not a holdover. He was a guy that I added. Gary Sheffield's a holdover. Billy Wagner's a holdover. This year, and this is what I wrote about, I added Rollins and Utley, the Philadelphia double play combination in the 2000s and early 2010s. And I also added Carlos Beltran. Now, with Beltran, I wrote at length about him last year. I did not vote for him last year. I was conflicted. And I was conflicted because, of course, he had been a significant player in the Astros' 
illegal sign stealing that took place in 2017 and 18. He had been one of the architects of the scheme, and I just didn't feel comfortable voting for him first ballot. Numbers-wise, there's no question he's worthy. I think Carlos Beltran is one of the better players of our generation, switch-hitting center fielder, brilliant on the bases. Offensively, defensively, he did everything you would want. But I just wasn't comfortable last year. And I said at the time, I revisit my vote every year. And I revisited that this year. And one thing I was not comfortable with not voting for him last year was the fact that I feel that the Astros players, while they were never punished by Major League Baseball, they have been punished in different ways by the public in all kinds of ways. And to say that these guys escaped scot-free, yeah, maybe under baseball, they did, but in the general public opinion, no, they did not. Carlos Beltran lost jobs. And to make a long story short, I just didn't feel comfortable penalizing him further. He's a Hall of Fame player. He made a mistake, obviously. Other players in the Hall of Fame have made mistakes, as we know. And that was my thinking on Beltran. Now, Utley and Rollins. This, again, is what I wrote about. And this was a fascinating debate in my own head really throughout the month of December and even a little bit before. And to kind of get where I felt good about voting for them, I talked to a number of people in the game, some people who were with the Phillies during those years, some people who were opponents of Utley and Rollins during those years. There wasn't unanimity, and I didn't expect there to be unanimity. But I basically felt that Chase Utley, when I was watching him play, was a Hall of Famer. He is everything or was everything that you would want in a player. Not just from an all-around skill standpoint, he did everything you'd want, offensively, defensively, base running, but just the way he conducted himself on the field. He was savvy. He was instinctive. He was cold-blooded. He would do anything to win. Now, I know he doesn't have 2,000 hits, and that's been something that has kept players out of the Hall of Fame on the writer's ballots ever since 1960. If you don't get to 2,000, you don't get in. Tony Oliva got in through a veterans committee. He had less than 2,000. Andrew Jones has less than 2,000. If he gets in, he'll be kind of breaking the mold as well. Utley had a shorter peak, yes, but it was a brilliant peak. And he, to me, again, is a guy that watching him play, I felt, yeah, he was a Hall of Famer. Jimmy Rollins, not so much. Jimmy Rollins was a guy that I thought was a really good player and obviously was, like Utley, a leader of those Phillies teams. But he was someone that, when you look at his statistics offensively for his career, he's a below average OPS plus. That bothered me. There are shortstops in the Hall of Fame with a below average OPS plus, but they were considered great defenders. Rollins' advanced metrics aren't as strong, at least the ones that are being used right now by the people who concoct these formulas. I don't buy that. Jimmy Rollins, to me, was a great defender. And that's why, ultimately, when I looked at him, he did some amazing things, even offensively, from a compilation standpoint. He was a guy, unlike Utley, who had the big county numbers. All-time Phillies hits leader. It's a franchise that's been in existence 140 years. 200 home runs, 400 stolen bases. Not too many players have done that. He did some other things as well. Sixth overall, all-time in games at shortstop. And... I hadn't really thought about him as a Hall of Famer until Jason Stark wrote something for The Athletic a couple of years ago. And that got me thinking. And you know what? 
Jimmy Rollins might not be a classic Hall of Famer, but I believe that if Utley's going in, Rollins should go in too. As long as, of course, he has the credentials. And while his credentials are borderline, I feel they're good enough. And I wrote, and I go back to this a lot, Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker. Alan Trammell is in the Hall of Fame. Didn't make it in 15 years on the writer's ballot, but made it with the Veterans Committee, or one of them, in 2018, along with his teammate Jack Morris. Lou Whitaker dropped off the writer's ballot in 2001 on the first year. Didn't get the necessary 5%. Now, Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell are closer in statistics than Rollins and Utley are. Rollins and Utley are kind of polar opposites. Whitaker and Trammell are somewhat similar. In fact, Whitaker might have the edge. To me, both should be in the hall. And I feel the same way about Utley and Rollins. Neither is a perfect candidate. I get it. But frankly, we have not elected enough Hall of Famers. And I know there are people who say, well, wait a second. Is it the Hall of the Very Good or the Hall of the Great? And yeah, I get it. If you're a small Hall guy, you're probably not favoring Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins and maybe some others on my ballot as well. But I'm a big Hall guy. And I believe these two guys, if they were in the Hall, if they got elected sometime during their eligibility period, they would not lower the standards of the Hall. They would distinguish the Hall. They were both guys that played on teams that were very successful. Five straight division titles, two World Series appearances, one World Series title. They were the heart and soul of those teams. And for that reason, I voted for them along with, of course, the statistical accomplishments that I cited. It's not an easy thing to vote for the Hall of Fame. And often when I vote, I kind of play both sides in my mind and can justify either side. And if I were arguing right now against Rollins and Utley, I could do that. I could argue against Sheffield, a guy I voted for. Well, yes, he had 509 home runs, but he wasn't much of a defender. You can pick holes and find justifications in virtually anything you decide to do. But to me, that's the beauty of this that it's a subjective vote. And it's something that we look at and those of us who vote take very seriously. We think about it a lot. And in the end, you just make the best decision you think possible. Sometimes you might change your mind. Sometimes you might be flat out wrong. And sometimes maybe you actually hit on it. So that's my explanation of the Hall of Fame ballot. There were plenty of comments on the column. Feel free to add more. I welcome all opinions on this. As I said at the top, it's the Hall of Fame. It's supposed to be fun, and it's supposed to spark debate. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. Dude of the Week is a player who announced his retirement. One of my favorites over the years, even though he is not a guy who had much time or interest in talking to the media. He would talk. He was very polite. He's a good guy. But that wasn't his thing. I'm talking about Michael Brantley. Michael Brantley, the sweet-swinging Michael Brantley, announced his retirement just last week. And this is a guy who had not a Hall of Fame career necessarily, but certainly a very impressive, distinguished career. Michael Brantley, let's look at his career numbers, and I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about here. He is a guy who has a career slash line of 298. That's his batting average, 355 on base, 439 slug. It's a 794 OPS. And when adjusted to the league and to the ballpark, that OPS 17% above league average. You might think, ah, that's not so great. But actually, that's pretty good. 17% above league average over a lengthy career is excellent. Michael Brantley, as well, was a class act. 
He was someone who his teammates revered. He had a couple of nicknames. Uncle Mike was one of them when he was with the Astros. And he's just someone that kind of embodied the word dude. He was a dude as a player. He was a dude as a guy. And he deserves a big send-off. I think he got one. A lot of people responded really well to his announcement. So, Michael Brantley, congratulations on a great career. It was a pleasure covering you. And that speech you gave to the Astros in 2022 during the World Series while you were hurt, well, your teammates remember it. It meant a lot. Kind of changed things for the Houston Astros. Helped them get where they wanted to be. Dork of the week. Why not start the new year with the way we rang out the old year? This never gets old. John Fisher, Oakland A's owner, Dork of the Week, for preventing this new independent team, the Oakland Ballers, from playing one game. One game at the vacant Oakland Coliseum. It will be vacant again this season, of course, as the A's prepare to move to Vegas and their fans stay away in droves. Now, John Fisher... Actually, in this situation, I believe Scott Osler wrote this in the San Francisco Chronicle. He couldn't win. He couldn't win because if he let those guys play one game in the Oakland Coliseum and they drew a big crowd, it would just be embarrassing to the A's. And he couldn't win because he looks petty by denying them the right to play one game and gets named Dork of the Week. I don't care. The whole situation is why you're Dork of the Week. The fact that the Oakland Ballers exist in the first place because why? The A's are moving. Well, you get what you get. John Fisher, Dork of the Week. All right, here we go with Grilling Ken. Let's get to your questions. First question from Dan Bartels. Dan asks, your expectations for the Mets this year? Dan, to be honest, they're not very high. And the Mets, after losing Yamamoto and not signing him, they have done what they said they would do, which is not much. They're adding players, yes. Are they star caliber players? No. They're mostly depth pieces, complementary parts. Harrison Bader, center fielder, free agent signing. Sean Manaya, left-handed pitcher, free agent signing. These guys are competent major leaguers, don't get me wrong. But Bader gets hurt a lot. Manaya's inconsistent. And really, they haven't done much in terms of upgrading this roster. It's kind of what they said. We're going for 2025 and beyond. That's why they traded Scherzer and Verlander. They wanted to retool and kind of move forward, but when you're talking about a division with the Phillies and the Braves, I'm not all that excited about their chances. Take a look at their rotation with Manaya. It's still not all that imposing. Kodai Senga, great rookie year. Jose Quintana, Luis Severino, maybe they can rebuild him. Maybe Manaya adopting the splitter last year will change his career. And then Adrian Hauser, who they acquired in the trade with the Brewers. They also made some interesting additions in the bullpen. No big names, but guys will fill it out. And what's interesting to me here is while they didn't do much in free agency this year, next year's free agent class, presuming they're going to be active again, and this again is what they're pointing to, 2025 and beyond, well, next year's class is star-studded. Juan Soto is in that class. Uh, Pete Alonso is in that class. They might want to re-sign him. Paul Goldschmidt, I would expect he'll re-sign with the Cardinals. Altuve and Bregman are potential free agents. I don't know that the Astros will sign both. Corbin Burns is a free agent. There is a lot of players or are a lot of players available. I'm forgetting Max Fried. I'm forgetting Walker Bueller. I'm forgetting Shane Bieber. It's a pretty good group. So the Mets, I would expect, would be more active next year 
but I don't expect them to be highly competitive in the NL East this year. They'll be good. They'll be at least a 500 team. Maybe they'll get the third wild card, but I'm not all that excited about what I'm seeing. Next question comes from Van City Red Sox fan at DJ Beef Thief. Van City Red Sox fan asks, why is John Henry so restricted with contracts and spending the last several seasons? It's very frustrating for Red Sox fans. Indeed it is. And I would suggest that this question go to the Red Sox owner, John Henry. But John Henry, it seems, does not really talk very often publicly. In fact, I can't remember the last time he spoke publicly. And I would think Red Sox fans are getting frustrated. I know they are getting frustrated. And what we have seen, as Chris Cotillo first reported on MassLive.com, is a team that seems intent on kind of keeping the payroll down again, at least down relative to its standing as a big market team. And I wrote with Jim McCaffrey on Friday about the possibility of trading Masataka Yoshida, a free agent they signed last year who tailed off in the second half, maybe signing Teoscar Hernandez. They don't seem to be in the mix for the biggest free agent pitchers, even though they need an ace. So I'm not sure when this team is going to start really firing on full throttle again. That's the term that, of course, Tom Werner, their chairman, used at the start of the offseason. There's still time. Maybe they'll do something to surprise us. They've made, under Craig Breslow, their new chief baseball officer, a number of nice complimentary moves. And the sale trade is interesting. It brings in Vaughn Grissom. But remember, they talked about full throttle. What we've seen is not full throttle. Finally, we get to our next question. This one is interesting, too. It's about the Minnesota Twins, and it comes from Steven. Steven asks, any rumblings regarding the Twins? They've been really quiet this offseason, even in the trade market, where they have been very busy in the last couple of years. Steven, you're absolutely right, and the Twins are one of these teams in regional TV purgatory. Not exactly sure what their revenues will be, and they're using that as the reason why they're not going out and spending. Maeda has left as a free agent. They've also lost Sonny Gray as a free agent. Now, they feel good about the starting rotation that they have. It's, of course, Pablo Lopez. It's Chris Paddock coming back full-time this year. It's Joe Ryan. It's Bailey Ober. And it's also Louis Varland. It's okay, but they could use one more. Now, they've talked about trading Polanco, possibly trading Kepler or someone else like Kyle Farmer. Nothing like that has happened yet, perhaps because there are still a lot of free agents out there. But this is a team that has a really exciting young nucleus. We saw some of these guys last year, Royce Lewis and Julian and Matt Walner. They might win the AL Central anyway, even if they don't do much. But if you're a Twins fan, you'd certainly like to see a bit more activity. Thanks to everyone for all your questions. Thank you for watching, for listening. You know where to find us, where to subscribe and to like YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Next week's show will be on Tuesday. We're going to observe the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday on Monday. We'll be back with Fair Territory on Tuesday, and you will see me on Foul Territory at some point this week as well. Hey, get in on the action with the FT fam at BetMGM. New customers use the bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for a $1,500 first bet offer. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your BetMGM Sportsbook account. Place your first wager and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if the bet loses. If that bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once your initial wager is settled. 
Gambling problem or concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLING.